This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Well, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts and philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today, I have a very special guest, uh, Dr. Brandon Rickabaugh, and I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. We're going to be talking about consciousness and uh, the unity of consciousness, different problems in philosophy of mind. Uh, I'm, I'm super, super excited for it. Um, so let me just let me just jump in. I'm not going to do anything else. Uh, I want to get this started. So without further ado, uh, Dr. Rickenbaugh, Brandon, thanks for coming on the podcast, man. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this too, Parker. Thanks for being interested in this. Yeah. So I first heard. Um, I think I first heard about you. I've seen your name around in like uh, philosophy of Christie kind of stuff, but um, I think it was back in 2018 you wrote an article um, for the Trinity Journal, and it was against. Um, I think it was McGrath's physicalism. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Alston McGrath. Yeah. And, and I was so excited about that because at that time I was starting to get into the philosophy of mind and seeing its importance um, and seeing you take him down uh, cordially, but, uh, but, but, but take him down and then, you know, pulling in Hebrew and Greek and uh, it was awesome. So I want to get into that a little bit, but cool. uh, first, can you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your, your schooling and how you got into philosophy of mind? Yeah. Yeah. My academic career, I'd say, began when I was uh, 16 years old when I dropped out of high school. Whoa. So that's where it started. <laughs> um, I went to, uh, so I grew up in Southern California and I went to the University of California at Irvine and I um, did a bachelor's, bachelor's in philosophy there. Hmm. Uh, and there I was really interested in epistemology and phenomenology um, mostly. And then I um, went to uh, Biola uh, for the uh, MA in philosophy of religion and ethics there. And so I studied, um, I started a shift and do more metaphysics, ontology, philosophy of mind there. Um, and then I also spent a year after my degree there studying um, spiritual formation uh, and soul care, although I didn't, I didn't do it for a degree. And uh, at the same time I was teaching at Biola and then at Azusa Pacific. And then I came out to Baylor University to do um, my PhD in philosophy and I focused on um, philosophy of mind, ontology of consciousness. Yeah. Um, still do, still do some epistemology, but my, I have all these different, my, my projects are grounded fundamentally in the nature of, or what the nature of consciousness can tell us about the nature of human persons. Um, what, what helps human persons flourish um, and how can we know certain things? Um, and then also how it impacts issues in the philosophy of religion. Yeah. That's so awesome. How, like, how did you ever even get into phenomenology kind of stuff, though, in undergrad? Like, what, yeah. where did yeah. that come from? It's kind of funny. Um, so I took an uh, intro to metaphysics class, 
And David Woodruff Smith was the professor, and I didn't know who he was, but he's a big, um, you know, big, big shot with uh, phenomenology and, and Husserl in particular. And for this intro to philosophy, uh, intro to metaphysics, we read Aristotle, and then we jumped all the way to Brentano and Husserl. Right. Natural <laughs> progression, yeah. <laughs> right. And then we read some Frege, and then I think some Searle. So, uh, so, and I just thought that um, his bringing together of Aristotle and uh, Husserl was really, really interesting. Mm. And so then he was teaching a class the next semester on time consciousness, and that was just a study of Husserl's work on time consciousness, and thought that was really fascinating and 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 uh, interesting. So it was it was in part it was because he was uh, David Woodruff Smith was there, and he was fun to um, study with. Yeah, and then I did epistemology with like. Sven Berniker was really great. And, mm. yeah. Wow, man, that's awesome. And and you brought that all the way into your, your dissertation with Aristotle and Husserl. Yeah, so, yeah. I can't get rid of those guys. <laughs> that's so amazing. Aristotle, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Alex uh, Proust really, like, got me reading some, you know, Leibniz and, you know, some Spinoza and, yeah. Yeah, that's that's what's so interesting to me about the philosophy of mind is that it's kind of at this nexus of – a lot of different sub-disciplines in philosophy. And I right. think if you if you want to be a good philosopher of mind, you need to know all these. You need to know uh, epistemology. You need to know especially metaphysics. Um, then things get into philosophy of free will, and those conversations come up. It's just yeah. so awesome. I think it's... Philosophy it's of language, a, neuroscience, yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. Philosophy of language, another one that I didn't realize. Yeah. Yeah. I, so I actually I, so I had a one-year um, uh, research fellowship um, that I just did at Baylor to study neuroscience. Yeah, because I thought, you know, that was really important for um, the conversations and philosophy of mind, at least. Yeah, it's huge. And I I, um, I came into studying philosophy and I had this chip on my shoulder about language analysis kind of stuff. And like, oh, you guys turned away from metaphysics and you're all jerks. And so I didn't mm -hmm. like language uh, philosophy until I started studying philosophy of mind and then kind of went back in through Davidson and those kind of things to language, yeah. realizing how important language is for philosophy of mind. <laughs> And uh, yeah, it's just been so cool. So one of the reasons I wanted to have you on, I'm so excited about, um, is because philosophy of mind is huge. It's super important for lots of different reasons, for Christian philosophy, Christian apologetics, for understanding personhood. Um, in your mind, you know, can you flesh that out for us? Like, why why is it important for those disciplines? Yeah, I I I think it's huge. Um, and it's bizarre because I think I can count on one hand the number of Christian philosophers working in philosophy of mind. Yeah. And, um, you know, three or four of the, you know, three of them are, re are retiring. So there's the, you know, I just, it, if I can encourage people, you know, go to philosophy of mind. Hmm. Um, I think it touches on everything. So, so like, I think I said my, my overall projects in philosophy are centered on this sort of foundation of, uh, phenomenal consciousness. Yeah. And so this is a very sort of phenomenological um, approach um, to philosophy in the world. And so I think that one consciousness is just one of the most, if not the most intrinsically fascinating feature of reality. It's also, it's, it's, you know, the way that Chalmers and others introduce it, they say it's, it's the, the, it's peculiar because it's the one thing that we're all intimately familiar with yet it's deeply mysterious, mm -hmm. mysterious. Um, and it's sort of, you know, one of the, you know, one of the great mysteries right now that people are 
um, largely convinced we're nowhere near um, solving under a particular guise, under a particular yeah. research program. So I think it's intrinsically interesting. Um, I think it's culturally relevant. <clears throat> and in particular, I think that um, the debates going on in uh, transhumanism mm -hmm. and artificial intelligence, and then, um, you know, the sort of you know what I what I call like the the future magic view of neuroscience that the idea that you know neuroscience is going to solve all of our psychological problems those are those three issues are central to what's going on and will become even more important um, as culture moves forward especially with artificial intelligence yeah and so understanding what so for example like if my dissertation or now this book that I'm writing on is right there's just well, we will never have computers or anything that are conscious like that. Yes. Right. So um, that that that's important for you know two reasons. One, uh, if if um, ethical knowledge requires, like most people think, having emotions or feelings, and computers can't have you know emotions or feelings, mm -hmm. then it seems like they're not going to be able to have moral knowledge. And if they can't have moral knowledge then we ought not trust them with many things. Yes. Right. And, well, uh, but, or, if they, but at the same time, if they do, if they could be conscious, yeah. then we face the ethical dilemma of turning a computer off is, is akin to killing it. Killing right. A right. Um, well, so those, that's a really, a it's issue. so good. There's so many trails. I, I want to, I don't want to go down all of them, but, but I think of like iRobot where that uh, where Will Smith has this prejudice against robots because one, sorry, spoilers, it's, it's been out for so long, but, but uh, he has a prejudice against robots because one saved him instead of this child, because it did this inward, you know, calculation exactly. and determined he is more valuable. And in that situation, it was actually representing, I would say the uh, ethical uh, calculations of its operator of, of whoever programmed it. Right. Right. So it wasn't its, its own, even in that case. Right. Yeah, and that's exactly why places like you know Google um, have mm. uh, have hired philosophers. Um, so self-driving cars, this is this is a real ethical dilemma. You have to program into that some way of deciphering out who it's going to hit if it has if it has to hit yeah. someone. Yeah, and and that's that's a huge that's a huge dilemma. Um, so these issues about consciousness and what constitutes what, you know what the nature of a person is um, ought to guide and curtail the sorts of technology that we should develop, mm. right? So in akin to, you know, a lot, many people thinking that we just shouldn't have invented the atom bomb because that's way too much power for us to have. You might think that, yeah, there, um, uh, artificial intelligence um, is the sort of thing that we need to be careful with. I, I think artificial intelligence is going to be extreme and already is extremely helpful with all sorts of things. Yeah. Um, and there's an important distinction to, to be made. Usually when people talk about artificial intelligence, they usually think about machines that are conscious. Right. Um, and uh, that's only one form of, of artificial intelligence. We're, we're, we're not anywhere close to having that. Yeah. When, you, when people talk about artificial intelligence now, it's, it's just um, uh, machines that are dark on the inside. Um, right. And, and yeah. so here's a, a question that I've been wanting to ask a, a philosopher of mine. Uh, in the um, maybe neuroscience, but in like the computer science world, they talk about AGI, um, right? And and in the in the philosophical world, I I have read Searle. I really like his arguments, uh, even though yeah. his personal life is kind of messed up. But uh, he talks about you know strong AI and weak AI. Is right. is AGI? Is that like correlated? Is that strong AI? Are those the same things? Do you, 
Um, yeah. So AGI, um, yeah, they're, yeah, they're very, very close. So um, artificial general intelligence is going to be um, the kinds of AI that are conscious. Mm-hmm. Right. And then you would have, so, so that's what AGI is. It's the yep. particular kind of artificial intelligence that are in, you know, science fiction. Right. Um, and like I said, we don't, we don't have anything close to that right now. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it would be, yeah, it would be close to strong um, in, in, in the Husserl's piece, I'm sorry, in, in Searle's piece um, he's, he's a little bit more after understanding, but um, yeah, that's a, that's a really good correlation there. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's something I've been thinking about a lot and that's, I love that. I, I love um, the cultural or the social, you know, imaginary is kind of taken by this obfuscation on uh, artificial intelligence, right? People yeah. look, there's this robot lady and she's going on talk shows and she's been granted human rights by Iran or whoever. Yeah. And you know, all the, uh, the computer scientists kind of laughing behind the scenes, like, yeah, it's not really AGI, but you know, and all the philosophers yeah. like, no, that's not even close right. at all, dude. And if it is, then you'd turn her off. Like, what yeah. are you doing? That's yeah. morally egregious. Right. Right. It, yeah. So there, so there are deep problems there. I think that philosophy of mind also is important for areas in um, ethics and in, in general and mm-hmm. epistemology. So, so um, you know, so for example, um, corporations uh, can be held accountable, uh, more held morally accountable and sanctioned accordingly. But if, my arguments are, are right about the unity of the consciousness. Um, a compu- a uh, anything with the the pr- particular kind of parts that we'll explain in a minute um, can't be conscious. So a corporation yeah. couldn't be a conscious entity. Yeah, and it, so it couldn't it couldn't have moral properties to be held accountable. What needs to be held accountable then are the people that constitute the corporation at a particular level. So, so this this would mean you know. So I was talking with a with a friend Brandon Paradise yesterday. who's a he's a law professor at Rutgers, and we were talking about this. And um, it's a way that you know lawyers are going to be really um, apprehensive about this because it makes it the case that um, major executives cannot hide before, behind companies yeah. um, in order to enact things that are radically morally questionable. Yeah. Um, so that so that you know, then I think. The big thing that I'm interested in right now is applying philosophy of mind to the philosophy of uh, of, of religion, which there's not been done um, much work at all. The, I think the you've got the cognitive science of religion that, mm-hmm. that would be important. No one there's been very few people, if any, that have applied philosophy of mind to the cognitive sciences um, of religion. And that in that paper that you read on Alistair McGrath, I tried yeah. to do that. Um, I think there's a lot of be a lot of work to be done in natural theology that hasn't been done. One of the projects that I have for next year is a consciousness first project on natural theology. Mm. Where we try to f- apply, or I try to apply um, specific methodology and in, in um, what I'm calling analytic phenomenology um, and issues in consciousness um, to issues in um, debates in natural theology. So for example, um, you know, the design argument. So there's a recently published paper um, where Philip Goff argues that the universe could um, design itself. Mm. It has a particular kind of uh, kind of cosmopsychist um, consciousness. Um, and then you've got the arguments from consciousness um, like Moreland and, and Swinburne and Adams and others have given. Um, but I think there's other ways that you can apply it particularly. So I, I have stuff on divine hiddenness that I think you can apply. Um, understanding of what consciousness is, what perception is, um, and 
and, and integrate that with certain psychological um, uh, evidence datum to help us understand what's actually how to frame the, the issue of divine hiddenness in a new way. Man, that sounds so interesting. That sounds so helpful. Yeah, there's there's the the psychology at play. If if it's directed a certain way, wouldn't recognize. You know, I, I don't want to scoop or anything like that. But that sounds no, super no, no. interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you know, and then it would impact issues in epistemology. People are really, really interested in social epistemology right now. Yeah, big time. Um, but if my arguments are correct, then so- social groups cannot have epistemic properties because. Mm something that uh, epistemic properties are going to largely going to be properties um, that correlate with or require consciousness mm-hmm. and groups of people can't be conscious. That, that, um, that's if so my, interesting. If my argument is correct. If my argument right, is correct. Right. That's, that's so interesting. Cause these are, these are deep, like deep aspects of a subset of philosophy and philosophy of mind, which is huge, but it has these practical ap- uh, applications in you know social theory and, you know, what's going on today It has uh, aspects in law. I, I think both that that law argument of the CEO not being able to hide behind his corporation and uh, different uh, sociological groups not being conscious. It, it sounds like, you know, Ned Block's uh, Chinese nation argument. Yeah. Uh, again, yeah. Right. It's, yeah. It, together, yeah. they don't there's no consciousness that emerges out of putting these people in a certain relation or anything like that. So, so right. interesting. Right, right. And there's, you know, in philosophy of religion, too, there's projects. Marilyn McCord Adams um, finished, you know, ends her famous paper on horrendous evils um, and the goodness of God by saying, um, look, there's this uh, there's this this account that I've given about God being able to share in the mental states of Christ um, or God being able to share in the mental states of ours um, that is totally unclear and really needs to be fleshed out by philosophy Mm -hmm. of mind. And there yeah. are other other issues too in Al- Alston's work on the presence of the spirit mm-hmm. and other other sort of projects in the philosophy of mind. So that there's just a, a, a huge number of of uh, issues that are just um, waiting to be worked on. I think. Yeah. That's, that's huge. I think uh, what's so encouraging to me is that you did do that work in uh, neuroscience because it seems like neuroscience has kind of taken just from as an outsider has taken a lot of the steam away from philosophy of mind. And now it sounds so cool to say, I'm a, I'm a scientist, I'm a neuroscientist. And, you know, Sam Harris claims to be like a philosopher of mind when he's in neuroscience scientist yeah. and, and he picks and choose uh, which moniker to use when it fits him. But he's, yeah. he's not a philosopher of mind. He's a, it, it, I don't think so. I mean, he's just working. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that's really cool that you're able to talk about both of those. And I think a good philosopher of mine ought to be able to have that, that conversation. Lord willing, man, I hope that this podcast uh, episode will draw people into philosophy of mine. Lord willing, I'll go on and, and do some work um, uh, following yeah. out of yours, which would yeah, be awesome. Yeah, that would be awesome, Parker. Yeah, yeah. So uh, again, I don't want to be claimed. I'm not a neuroscientist. And I spent right. one year studying a particular area. So mm-hmm. um but uh, but yeah, I think it's in the same way that philosophers, you know, the other per, dire, the other director of my dissertation, Tim O'Connor, is, um, and others have sort of worked as philosophers who check um, the neuroscientists and psychologists um, that are working on free will. I think there's work to be done philo- by philosophers to check the neuroscience and psychology of consciousness. Yeah, so I think that's yeah. important work to be done. That's huge. I, I grabbed a, uh, a quote from your dissertation uh, by Marilyn Robinson. It says, um, oh, whoever yeah. controls the definition of the mind controls the definition of humankind itself and culture and history. I thought yeah. that was so huge. And it goes back to what you um, uh, you quoted. 
what's his name? I always forget names on the podcast. Um, yeah. Yeah. A panpsychist, um, external mind. Philip Goff or? Uh... No. Um, super uh, Chalmers, Chalmers, Chalmers. Oh, David Chalmers. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So you, you, you quoted Chalmers there and uh, talked about how it's, it's mysterious, but it's right here. Like we are conscious right, right now. We are, it's, it's, the, it's foundational and um, so important to, to try and get a, a grasp on. So we've talked about a little bit about culture and philosophy and importance there. Um, we talked a little bit about uh, Christianity, but something that, that is discouraging for me, I would say, is this new movement in Christian theology to be physicalists, um, to, yeah. to reinterpret and say, you know, this was dualism was a hangover from Plato and um, it's wrong and, you know, it denigrates the body. And so, you know, Christians ought to be physicalists. And then we can kind of toss in some magic on how God holds together the unity of consciousness. Uh, yeah. But it's not through a, a substantial soul kind of thing. Uh, right. and, and, and this is something that you've worked on, again, in that at least in that one article. Um, but I know you've, you've done it other places, too. Um, so how, how does... Well, I mean, I guess we just kind of talked about it, but the philosophy of mind is important for Christian theology um, because it can help be a check on the, the theologians as well and the biblical scholars who want right. to say, no, this can't be true because of Plato. Uh, we need to right. re reinterpret scripture and Christian doctrine. Right. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think there's a couple important things to say there. One, one I think that... Um, Christian materialism or Christian physicalism is is easier to get away with when you don't get into issues of consciousness. Hmm. If you just get into the metaphysical constitution of you know an animal um, or the persistence of a, of a person, it may be a little bit easier um, to make a case for materialism. Although I don't, I still don't find it plausible. But if you focus on consciousness. The plausibility of of physicalism, um, uh, materialism, even uh, even assuming theism, is really really low, hmm. um, unless you, unless you want to posit some type of emergentism. Yeah. But if if you do that, then you've lost you've given up on on providing an explanation, and you've just posit you know because uh, emergentism for the theist is largely going to be this issue of well God just makes a law. And when things get arranged in the right way, boom, you get a soul or boom, you get consciousness. Right. Um, you know, I can, we can talk, talk more about that. But um, the second thing I think that's driving a lot of the works, so I see this in the work of Joel Green and Nancy Murphy in particular, is this misunderstanding that neuroscience has some sort of authority over philosophy and theology. Right. And that might be with certain things, right? Um, I, I would not want as a philosopher or I wouldn't want a theologian to start giving um, me um, qua philosopher, qua theologian, um, detailed uh, advice on treating like say depression or schizophrenia. Right. So the, <laughs> that's not, you know, but, but when it comes down to the nature of a human person, the neuroscientific data really doesn't give us any decisive answer. And it's, and, and the data that's proffered by neuroscientists or by Christian physicalists is equally accounted for it's underdetermined mm -hmm. it, it's easily accounted for by the the dualist a dualist view too and and people like nancy murphy even ad admit to that so i think there's this worry that um, or there there's this there's this author there's this authority thesis about neuroscience that dominates 
um, and drives the kind of hermeneutic that people want to give. Because the argument that uh, dualism is a Greek idea is one, just like historically naive, but two, so what? Like if it was a Greek idea, like, I mean, Plato believed in a lot of things that are true. Yeah. Right? You know, so, um, and then that paper with Al- Alistair McGrath, I try to get in, in into those, those details. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you did a great job on that as well. I, that's such a good point too. We could just say, you know, common grace or, you know, the, the Pythagorean theorem, you know, like that's, um, that's Greek as well. Right. So, right, uh, right, we, right, we shouldn't right. use that anymore. Right. Um, yeah. Right. That's, that's a great point. Well, so, so we've talked about like the importance of consciousness. Can we, can we get into like a definition? Like what, what are we talking about here? What is consciousness? Good. Yeah. So um, there are, I mean, the first way that you usually deal with consciousness is to um, start with, begin with um, an ostensive definition. And that's just to um, consider a particular case Mm -hmm. and analyze it from the first person perspective so imagine that you are, you know, in a coma. You can't, you can't imagine that because presumably you're not conscious. But as you come out of um, the coma, you um, start to get this um, sense of smell. You start to feel the heaviness of your body in the um, in the hospital uh, um, bed. You start to feel or see the brightness of the lights. You start to hear a conversation going on. You start to get back these senses and that seems to be the most simplest way to say you're 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 an obvious way to say you're regaining consciousness or you're gaining consciousness mm-hmm. so we start off by sort of pointing out that that's the that's the thing that we're talking about that's the phenomena we're talking about and then we're and then philosophers are going to start making distinctions about types of consciousness mm-hmm. and um since ned block and I, th- I would say the the vast majority of philosophers and neuroscientists think that this is a um, a correct um, or at least useful distinction, and and even many many um, uh, studies in neuroscience um, make this assumption is that there's going to be a distinction between what Bloch calls uh, phenomenal consciousness and access consciousness. Mm-hmm. So um, let me let me get over here so that I can give you a you know. So I mean, this is the technical definition, and then that I provide anyway. Um, I should say, yeah, I guess I want to say one thing here is that, um, I am convinced that mental states are not, are not states of consciousness. Um, but that states, um, phenomenal states, states of awareness are properties of persons. Hmm. And so, um, uh, you know, a men- there's no, there's no mental state divorce, you know, without a person. And so the, yeah. the, what is consciousness isn't this sort of state that's out there divorced from a person, but the person is the thing that's conscious. The subject is the thing that's conscious. Yeah. There's so, no uninstantiated uh, conscious states or, or mental yeah. states. Yeah. So I call, you know, the thesis that I, that I, that I give in the book is um, subject necessity mm. for any, for any state of consciousness. Um, there is necessarily a subject of that state. So with that in mind, so here's the, you know, the definition of phenomenal consciousness I, I, I give. So for all mental states, M, a subject S, so me, you know, having this experience of, of seeing you, uh, well, seeing an image of you on the computer screen. Um, for all mental states, M, a subject S, having that mental state M is an instance of phenomenal consciousness when that subject being in that mental state involves them having a subjective experience, A, 
what it's like for us, what it's like for me to be in M. Yeah. So, um, and that's going to be distinguished between uh, um, access consciousness, which uh, access consciousness is going to be the case that, um, you know, for all mental states M, a subject S having M is an instance of access consciousness, just when S being an M involves S as having access to the content of M. So there's going to be a difference between what it's like to experience seeing red and, and um, my ability to access the content of thinking about red. Those does are going to be two different things. Well, does that make, does that make, I never really, I never thought much about access consciousness because I, I did a, a philosophy of mind uh, research um, class with Arkady here. And uh, I focused on qualia because I, I wanted to write a paper called qualia assurance. Uh, that's really like I took the whole class because I wanted to write that paper with that title. But that's awesome. I, I have a I have a book. No, no one can steal this. Now I'm putting it out there. Yeah, that's that's I right. Have a book um, that I want to write against naturalism called Rage Against the Machine. Mm, yes. So we'll have to write. You know, we'll have to come up with some dueling titles there. Yeah, like man, that sounds awesome. Well, so I, I haven't focused on access consciousness, but it, is access consciousness um, like necessarily reflexive, like like self conscious or? No, yeah, usually self-consciousness is a type of phenomenal consciousness in the okay. sense of it's an experience of your self-awareness. So so I'm not sure I understand like why we would need access consciousness or what, what it's picking out different than phenomenal consciousness. Can, can you have a phenomenal conscious, um, a qualitative state um, that you don't have access to, I guess? Well, you can have, um, yeah, that's a really good, that's a really good question. I want to think that um, what we're really after is that there seems to be a difference between um, my accessing a memory, for example, okay. and the experience I have of experiencing the memory or something like that. So you want to say something like um, the, that a mental state is, is available to me by introspection is means that there that that I've got access to that conscious state. Okay. But phenomenal consciousness refers specifically to the what it's like to experience having that mental state. Okay. Right. So you might think that um, computers might have access consciousness and that they can retrieve data, but they can't have phenomenal consciousness or don't have phenomenal consciousness because they don't experience a what it's like to perceive or experience that data. Yeah. That that what it's like. That's why I, I focus more on on um, phenomenal consciousness because I think it's more it's more important. It's more foundational. Um, I wonder. This might be getting us uh, down a rabbit hole, but I wonder if you could even have uh, access consciousness without phenomenal consciousness. Because even when you're accessing right, <clears throat> like something that it's like to access that memory, right? Yeah. So there, yeah. So there's a debate. Yeah, and then cognitive ph phenomenology of of whether or not. Um, cognitive states, some or all cognitive states have, in virtue of having that cognitive state, a phenomenal altery to them. Yeah. So, you know, what it's like to, I mean, a corollary would be something like phenomenal conservatism, that mm -hmm. um, that something um, seems true to me is evidence that it is true. It's defeasible, right? And yeah. the strength of the evidence will vary, but that seeming state will be described as having an assetoric force that um that's that ha that correlates with how strong that evidence seems to me and yeah. that seeming sounds like a phenomenal state mm. 
right? It just, so think about when I, you know, when you first learned, look, if A is taller than B and B is taller than C, then A is taller than C. Mm-hmm. You have this, aha, oh, I get it. And that's an experience. Um, and the cognitive phenomenologist will say that that is a phenomenal experience that you're having in a cognitive state. Ooh, wow, that's interesting. Because that, that kind of brings us into some aspects of epistemology and and yeah, maybe even logic too, like like seeing uh, seeing the consequence or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So Husserl does does this. He thinks that um, um, the laws of logic don't need to be. Um, are not presuppositions, mm. but they're actually things, the, the knowledge of them, you experience in contemplating them. They're, they're actually, they have, they they have a sort of, they're, they're known through an eidetic, eidetic intuition. You think about it and it just makes sense. And yeah. the, and the experience of it making sense provides evidence for, for you that they are true. Yeah. So they don't well, need to be assumed. Um, in fact, you know, some people think it's, it, it doesn't even make sense to say that laws of logic are assumed. They're just present in your reasoning. And upon reflection, you get the evidence of them being true. Yeah. They're, that would make them At like least phenomenologi- phenomenologically, maybe not metaphysically, but phenomenologically. Mm, okay. 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 Yeah. And epistemically. That's good. It's like the operating system on your phone instead of like an app on your phone. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. You might think, yeah. So Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's a loose loose analogy. It's just <laughs> okay. going to be the difference is going to be between me. So, so in, in apologetics, for example, there are arguments that um, you know different t- kinds of transcendental arguments that say that um, you can't argue for or have evidence for the um, um, the laws of logic being true. They have to be presupposed. Mm-hmm. But what have to be presupposed in order to count for those is um, God. And depending on the presuppositionalist, right? If it's a Vantillian, then they're going to say the triune God. Mm-hmm. Um, th- th- this this view would say that um, no, you don't have to presuppose them; they're evident to you in reflecting on them and your experience in the world, and so that you're epistemically justified in believing them just because you experienced what what Husserl calls the um, fulfillment of them in, in in reality. But what you th- that that's different though than saying that the metaphysical question about the existence of the laws of logic or how they map onto the world um, is best accounted for by theism. Yeah. That argument you could still make. And I'm actually um, pretty sympathetic to, to different forms of transcendental arguments. And I actually think there's one you can make from, from phenomenal consciousness. Um, Yeah. That's that's a little different. I hint hint at it in the, in the dissertation. Yeah. Um, well, okay, so we we have a little bit of consciousness in there. I, I really like, um, and and I think it's kind of ubiquitous in the literature. Um, Nagel's, what you know, what it's likeness, and and is yeah. is that that is like, are you cool with that? Do you, I mean, you've said what it's likeness, but is that yeah. following Nagel then? Like, yeah, yeah, Nagel makes that yeah sort of famous. What it's like, I'll never, yeah, um, I can't ever know what it's like to be a bat because I'm not a bat. Mm-hmm. I can only know what it's like to be me. Um, and I, and I think that, yeah, the way that you want to distinguish a particular kind of consciousness, phenomenal consciousness in this case is that feature of what it's like to experience that state. Okay. Where I think, um, Nagel, what I, what I think that is wrong about Nagel's at least talk about it, um, is with him talking about mental states having that feature. Mm. 
as if there's this sort of qualia that hangs on something called a mental state. Yeah. And I want to say, no, a mental state is a modification of the person. Yeah. Um, in virtue of which the person has a, what it's like to experience. So the property is attached to the person. And, and you go that route uh, because persons are neurological holes. Well, I go that route one, because I can't, because I think that it's concept it's um, I can't consider a state of, consciousness that doesn't have a subject phenomenal consciousness that is that makes so much sense to me i, yeah. I think that's so right but but that that has uh implications for like descartes cogito right um, so people will say you know all that people all the time they say this and, and maybe i'm wrong maybe you'll correct me but they say you know um all descartes cogito proves you know i think therefore i am uh proves is that there's thinking going on it's a famous yeah. you know criticism of them from back in the day and right. I think what, what you're saying right now would, would imply that, no, there is no such thing as just uh, a, the property thinking hanging out there right. in, the, in the void of thinking right. pre- presupposes or thinking is, is done by a thinker. Is that right? Right. Yeah, I think you're right. And so like Descartes scholars like John Cottingham and uh, Nicholas Jolie will just point out that that criticism of Descartes fails to understand how the Latin works hmm. or even how the French works. Um, the way that, um, he talks about the kind, so you'll also get this argument too, from Christian theologians that, um, Descartes reduces persons to thinking things. Yeah. Brains on sticks or whatever they say. Right. And they just haven't, they just are unfamiliar with Descartes work Mm -hmm. because what, and, and also the, the Latin or the French, because what he counts as thinking includes emotions Mm. and would include phenomenal consciousness. Um, and then to the, to the, to your question, um, he thinks require a subject of consciousness. Yeah. So there, there's gotta be a, uh, there's gotta be a subject there. So that's why I think that I also think that, um, uh, it's really, really important that humans are fundamental entities, that, that persons are fundamental entities. Mm -hmm. They function as a unit of explanation. That's not reducible to the subpersonal level. Yeah. Um, and that there are other arguments that, you know, there's a publication I have with Todd Beres on the argument from reason where we try to establish that. But I, that, that's another reason that I think it's really, really important to um, recognize this nece- this link of necessity between a state of phenomenal consciousness and the existence of the subject who has it. Yeah. There's a modal distinction. You can't have one. Um, you can't have a phenomenal state without there being a subject that undergoes it. Amen, dude. I love that. That's so good. Um it's the first time I've ever gotten an amen on that. I like it. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I wonder, so I, I talked with uh, uh, philosophical theologian <clears throat> James Anderson on this, and uh, I was, I, I, for the class last semester, I read um, Swinburne's Are We Bodies or Souls? And, and Swinburne uses Descartes, um, and um, he soups up his arguments and says, you know, there are thinking is a property and there are no properties that are like uninstantiated or, or properties are had by substances. So from the fact that there is thinking going on, there's a substance, substantial thing that is the thinker. And, and Anderson said, maybe we don't need to go that far. Maybe we just say that there's thinking presupposes a, um, a, a thinker, but, but maybe it doesn't have to go into metaphysical, the metaphysical baggage of, of substances. Do you, do you, um, do you have a thought on that? It, does this go? I know we'll get into that yeah. later. So I'm jumping ahead, but yeah. So, you know, I, I'm always um, reluctant to comment on another philosopher's, mm. you know, thought or something. I know that's yeah. not what you're really asking me to do, yeah. 
but just for clarity, I'd want to say, well, let me let me talk with Anderson and, and understand a little bit more of of what he means. Yeah. So um, I don't so I don't think he's afraid like, of going. It sounds like what he's saying is that is that the mere existence of a phenomenal state does not require a substance ontology, right? And so he might just be saying, look, um, we need an extra argument to get to a substance ontology. A um, you know a bundle theory um, might be enough to account for a phenomenal. Mm. Um, for for a mental state, and Sophie Gibb um, at Virginia is is a dualist who argues, right? She's a substance dualist, but she doesn't hold that. She thinks that what a substance is is a bundle of properties, not a sort of substance in the Aristotelian sense. So yeah. maybe if he means that, then I think, um, yeah, sure. There's an extra argument that needs to be given there, and I try to give that kind of argument in my chapter on emergence, actually. Okay, yeah, that's huge. I think yeah. I think he's trying sure. to lower the bar for. Um, for the argument. So if someone is really, really against, you know, um, the, 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 the metaphysical categories there saying, well, no, it, it's, there's at least a subject. So even if you want right. to try and argue against, you still have to have a subject from the fact of, you know, phenomenal consciousness or, or thinking going on. Right. So I, th- I think we need to be careful there because, um, and this is in part why philosophers of mind are so reluctant to, to adopt this thesis I'm calling uh, subject necessity. Mm-hmm. And that's because um, understanding what itself is does seem to require some pretty large metaphysical commitments. Yeah. Um, because you'll, you'll have views like say a, um, a stream of consciousness view of self. And all that is, is, is just some mental states that are causally related to each other. Mm-hmm. But we don't really have a subject that's differentiated from the mental states. Yeah. So understanding a self that way, doesn't seem to do the work or a narrative view of the self um, doesn't seem to make sense of, you know, narratives aren't the sorts of things that have mental states. Hmm. So um, I want to say, yeah, that seems right. We get, we get a self, but things get snuck in there. We have, there's going to be, it's going to be pretty quick that what a self is, is going to have to be some sort of thing that is the bearer of a property. Yeah. And standard metaphysics is going to call that, you know, a substance, what counts as a substance then, we'd have to, you know, work through. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's huge. I, I really like that. I, I think that I got to chew on that some more. I think that's yeah. awesome. But as a rhetorical strategy, I think, I think Adam, uh, Anderson's right. Like, let's just say, let's just see if our, if the argument works for itself and then move on. EJ yeah. Lowe does this kind of thing, but then he gives this real strong argument that it has to be a substance, mm-hmm. uh, metaphysically simple substance. Yeah. Yeah. This is, I, I used to think of Descartes as the boogeyman because um, I, I am a Van Tilian myself and Van Til is pretty hard on, on Descartes. Here I was like explaining Van Til to you and you. <laughs> <laughs> People at home are probably laughing. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm closer to Anderson and, and his interpretation, but I, I read Descartes for myself in a, uh, a classics class here at Ted's. And I was like, man, I really like this. I really like what he's doing. I, he is not as, crazy as i've heard he, i do not think that he set up the subjective turn the way that you know yeah. uh, francis schaefer said and stuff like that and yeah i, I do appreciate him a lot more yeah i mean historically that's just false so it's it's not mel Branch is the one who really should be you know a student of descartes is the one who really um just sociologically brings those things into the discussion yeah um so descartes is 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 a bit of a mess in many ways because you know, there's a group of, of more recent Descartes scholars that argue that he is in many ways um, a neo-Aristotelian yeah. because he talks about the body as, uh, and, and he talks about the soul as the form of the body. And so 
Descartes has a, there's a lot of nuances uh, uh, to look through there. And I don't think the simple sort of ways that he gets interpreted um, do him justice. Yeah. Well, and I think, I think you may have talked about that in your McGrath article Uh, somewhere. You've talked about that, that connection there. Uh, And I I was blown away. I thought that was so crazy to, to, yeah. Cause you don't, I was was too when I found that. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, so go might think too, I'll just add this in too. Yeah, like in terms of just like reading Descartes. Um, I think it's pretty clear if you l- read more of his literature that what he's doing there in the meditations is not so much giving us an ontology of the human person mm-hmm. so much as giving us a treatment of, of uh, um, a, uh, he starts, he dedicates the meditations um, to the church as a defense of Christianity. Right. His main his main argument there is to try to give an argument for God's existence and that we can know it. Yeah, and so he just makes an assumption of skepticism. If you read the rest of his work, he doesn't buy skepticism. Mm-hmm. He's not a radical skeptic skeptic like that, and he's not like a radical platonic dualist right. that most people do. And you you might get that just from reading the meditations, but if the if you read his fuller body of literature, that's that's just not the case. Yeah. No, I think you're right. And I I think um, I really like the Kagito because I think he is arguing in transcendental fashion. Maybe I'm wrong. But then right after that, he goes into his ontological argument for God. And, and whether that's successful or not, he's trying to do what Van Til wants to do. And yeah. I think that's uh, hilarious. That it's like, he's not this boogeyman. It, yeah. Just take what you can. And if, if certain arguments fail, then soup them up or, or drop them. But at least appreciate them for, for what he's trying to do. Right. Yeah, I don't think he tries to get the Trinity like Van Til wants. Right. Um, but yeah, I think yeah, that, that's yeah. A, that's a really good point. I think, and I'm not a Cartesian either. Yeah. So, um, so I'm not, you know, I'm not an apologist for Descartes. I just think right. we got to be fair with him. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, that's huge. Um, so this, I'll, I want to trans, uh, I want to keep going on into uh, unity of consciousness, and that's really a big one yeah. for you. We talked about yeah. consciousness. Can you explain? You know, what what is the unity of consciousness or the consciousness good. problem? So. So in particular, I'm after, so in theories of unity, um, uh, there's a distinction that tracks the access and phenomenal consciousness. So there'll be um, access, you know, phenomenal, or sorry, uh, access conscious that's unified, Mm -hmm. and there will be phenomenal conscious that's unified. So I'm interested in the phenomenal unity of consciousness. And so um, one of the cases that I, one of the, you know, just examples that I use is um, throughout the, the the chapter on this is that, you know, imagine that you're in a museum and you have all of these experiences at once, the color of the, the you know, an experience of the redness of the painting, mm-hmm. an experience of the, the uh, depth of field that stands between you and the, and say the wall and the painting, and then the frame that the painting has. Um, and say that I'm sort of fidgeting with my pen as I um, as I uh, look at this, and so I have a tactile experience. And uh, say that I, I hear a conversation sort of off in the distance. The unity of phenomenal consciousness is is points out to the fact that it seems quite obvious that there is a state where all of those things are totalized together mm-hmm. that are not reducible to those individual states. Yeah. So you have all these different kinds of phenomenal consciousness that are bound together in one state. And that's what I experience. So not only is there, because so in the way to, to see that that's not merely an aggregation of the bits is that um, 
I mere, I, it's not that I have an experience of red redness or any of those other experiences that I listed, the mm -hmm. pen, the sound, the smell of coffee. It's that there's a what it's like to experience all of those as one state. Yeah. And so that's that's what what's generally thought or that's that's the datum that's trying to be explained in, in the debates about the phenomenal unity of consciousness is that I have this I'm the, I experience a state that is not merely an aggregation of parts. Yeah. That there's a what it's like to experience all of these at once. And that's one unified state of consciousness. Yeah, that that reminds me of, of metaphysically I, unified. Yeah, there's there's a debate. I, I believe maybe it's you know old hat uh, because I'm coming in late. But Searle would say, yeah, like there's one qualia experience, kind of like one qualia maybe, and you're not like carving out different qualia um, from that. Whereas other people, I think, are saying, no, there's all these different qualia. Like there's what it's like to see this apple, and then you have all these other things in your field, and. Right. I think he's saying there's like this, I think Searle would say there's like this unified, you can't carve it out because that's just what consciousness is. It is this, right. this qualia. And maybe he's yeah. getting different there, but it reminded me of what you were saying. No, he definitely is. Here, here's a quote in, in this, in chapter four, or no, sorry. Yeah, chapter four, he says, it's absolutely essential to understand that consciousness is not divisible in the way yeah. that physical objects typically are. Rather, consciousness always comes in discrete units of unified, in a unified conscious field. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly what he's going to. And he thinks, and I think he's right, that if you're going to solve the problem of consciousness, this is part of the problem. Yes. And so I, I'm I'm convinced that the unity of phenomenal consciousness is actually a harder problem than the mere hard problem of phenomenal consciousness. That's that's huge. Yeah, I really like that. Um, I, I was first introduced to this because I, I really like the argument from reason, C.S. Lewis. Um, I really like, you know, transcendental arguments from from Van Til, though I don't think he really made a lot his, himself, but he kind of put forward the model for it. I think C.S. Lewis kind of follows that model. I'm, I'm writing a paper when we're done with this on that. Uh, and, and following through, through Davidson. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Uh, it's terrifying, but that would be awesome. Um, <laughs> but but Victor Reppert talks about uh, the, the binding problem. and. Good. Is, yeah. is that the same? Is that the same thing? The the binding problem is the problem of the unity of consciousness, or is that different? Yeah. So the binding problem is a problem in the neurosciences, and mm -hmm. it is the m probably the most um, difficult problem uh, to work on now. And the binding problem has to do with the so so one way to think about it is the binding problem is a problem about the neural mechanisms of mm -hmm. of a of a unified state of consciousness where the unity of phenomenal consciousness is usually cast in a problem about the mental state itself. Okay. So the neuroscientists, what they're trying to do is, and I, and I get into this, um, you know, in, in, in the book that there are right there, we've discovered that there are various regions of the brain mm -hmm. that are responsible, that are, that are segregated from each other and responsible for specific kinds of perception. Yeah. Right. So we know if, um, Right. If you if you have a particular um, lesion in, in uh, a, re a region called uh, V4, then you you can lose your color perception. Hmm. If you have have a lesion in region IT, then you you can use lose the ability to identify shapes. And so what that tells us, there are discrete parts of the brain that are correlated with different types of experience. Yeah. But what we don't have is any sort of uh, indication that they're bound together. 
as one experience. There's no, the, there's no mechanism or part of the brain that binds these things together into one experience. Isn't it the pineal gland? Isn't that? Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, no, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, the, and the thing that I find fascinating and it's so funny, like what other philosophers find like interesting, mm. but I gave, I gave this talk one time and Alex Proust, I mean, he, you know, um, I studied with him and, you know, he's this great big old genius guy, right? Yeah. He's sort of like the planning of our time, I think. Right, I right. said this one thing that I thought was like a throwaway line. And he's like, that's fascinating. And I start to think that he's right now. And he's, and, and the, the comment that I made was um, the binding problem is showing us that the more and more we learn about the brain, the more aggregated its structure yes. is becoming. Mm-hmm. And so the less probable the, the binding the solution to the binding problem becomes because we're finding more things that need to be bound together. Yes. And so the more we learn about neuroscience, the more mysterious phenomenal consciousness becomes. Yeah. And I just thought that was like an aside and Alex thought it was really uh, interesting. And I, and I'm starting to think that 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 is interesting now too, because what you get now is the thing that most physicalists or naturalists want to say is wrong with dualism. And that's that there's no explanatory value in the theory, Mm -hmm. but it does have explanatory value in this sense. If dualism is true, um, substance dualism is, is, or the certain kinds of fu- substance dualism is true, then there, we wouldn't expect there to be a binding problem at all. Yeah. But if physicalism is true, then we should expect a bind. Or, or here's, here's a different way to put it. Maybe that, that wasn't the best way to put it. If substance dualism is true, we should expect our conscious states to be phenomenally unified. Yeah. Because there's a simple soul that has them. That's not comprised of separable parts. Mm-hmm. But if you assume physicalism, the opposite should be true. And that's that you've got all these discrete mental states that are dispersed over um, a multitude of, of neurological parts. And so what you end up having a case is if physicalism is true, we shouldn't have the sort of conscious states that we do. Yeah. But if dualism is true, this is how this is how we should expect the world to be. Yeah. There. So um, just real quick, there's a I have a giant African bullfrog and he keeps croaking. Um so just so you know, all the listeners know, that's not me. That's not any biological thing. That's just a frog croaking. Yeah. Um, I think he likes you. But so that I, I love that problem. That's why I think of, I think that the unity of consciousness and it being grounded in a substantial soul or a unified soul um, answers this binding problem because you're look, you're like in a cockpit of an airplane trying to say like, how does this thing fly? You know, you have all the mechanisms here, but there's nothing, there's no one here to do it. And, you, right. and you're never going to find that without the the pilot. I know that's probably a bad analogy because we don't want to say like the soul is a ghost in the machine kind of thing, Yeah, but it, it kind of like, yeah, it kind of is like, there's a person there that you're looking for yeah. that you're not going to find in the brain. No, I think, no, no, that's a really good insight. I mean, cause you've just stated Leibniz's mill, um, argument in a different way. You've stated it with a plane. So he says, look, imagine that the um, the mind or the brain is like a mill and you're shrunk down and you go inside of it. You look around the mill and all of its parts and the structures, the external relations among the parts, and you're not going to find a subject of consciousness there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, same point. I think maybe William Lane Craig said this before um, about a, a piano. I'm not sure if he did or not, but but like you're on the inside of the piano and you see all the keys going. And you're mm-hmm. like, yeah, it's just this is how it happens. When that thing goes, this song plays and this this goes and you hear this song. But you're on the inside and you're not seeing the person on the other side who's yeah. playing the piano. 
I think that one that doesn't work though because you've got player pianos right that play themselves yeah that's <laughs> um I, yeah so yeah that's good yeah <laughs> all right scratch that everybody i mean okay so now here's the bizarre thing though is um <laughs> christopher tomaszewski who's you know brilliant i've learned tons by studying with him at baylor he was in, he's a, we were in the same cohort he's another grad student at, at baylor um, we were taking this class with John Haldane and Haldane was talking philosophy of mind. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about how in, um, uh, intentional states are things that, that only minds um, can have and robots can't have them. And Christopher says, so you're trying to tell me that robots can't walk. And Haldane says, yeah. And it's, and it's, it's a funny sort of way of framing it. Cause you can say, no, 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 look, I see that robot walking right there. But the point is, is much like playing a piano playing a piano isn't reducible to the moving functions of the keys. Right. It's actually an intentional state to play a particular kind of music, just like walking is an intentional state to move your body to achieve some goal. Yeah. Those intentional states um, are not the sorts of things that are properties of machines. Yeah. And so, so you might say that, no, 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 that's right. The player piano doesn't play music. Mm-hmm. It's just um, they're just outputs um, that sound, you know, that 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 are um, behaviorally look look and sound just like. Yeah, music. yeah. I, I think I, I I just finished up my my master's thesis and I had to go through analogy um, because I, I worked on an authorial analogy and, and metaphor. And I think uh, initially I wanted to say, well, it's an analogy analogical sense, but it's not. It's in a that robot is walking and the piano is playing in a metaphorical sense, which is literally false. It's not actually doing that, but you can think of it or maybe right. like an intuition pump. Like it's, it's as if it is or something like that, but, but really because a, a human mind programmed it to do that. Right. And right. Oh, Oh, Oh yeah. It has like, this is what I love about, about Searle's Chinese remarkment. It has like uh, observer relative, uh, well, you know, he's talking about thoughts and stuff, but like observer relative, that thing's walking because we're interpreting it as walking, but maybe, maybe it doesn't have observer independence because it's not a mind. It doesn't have intentional uh, states itself. Right. Yeah. And yeah. And so the, I think the right way to look at the Chinese room argument is from the first person experience of the person in the room. Yeah. And his, yeah, his is about meaning, but I think that um, I, I think that his argument actually rides on an assumption about the unity of, of phenomenal yeah. consciousness too nice dude i love it it all comes back yeah david barnett points points that out so i can't i'm not the one who discovered that yeah okay well um uh brenny do you feel like we can we can wrap up this episode or or do you have anything else to add on on consciousness before we jump into part two no no this is this is this is this is great i think maybe one thing you might we might want to just state briefly is sort of the myriological relations but right but I think we can, yeah. Let's do that at the at the next um, at the next uh, session. Awesome. Well, dude, thanks thanks for coming on in episode one here. This has been fantastic uh, for our listeners. Uh, jump right in to uh, to part two. We're going to be talking about uh, we're going to be talking about naturalism. We're talking about myriology, holes and part relations, and and lots more uh, awesome stuff. So, uh, Brendan, thanks for coming on. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God. <laughs>